At the beginning of August, the family of a woman named Henrietta Lacks settled a court case against biotech company Thermo Fisher, arguing that her cells had been harvested without consent and that the company continued to profit off of them. Henrietta Lacks was a black woman from America whose cells were taken from a tumour prior to her dying from cervical cancer. Those cells are called today healer cells and are the first immortalised human cell line. They've contributed to several significant breakthroughs in modern medicine since. Despite this, Ms. Lax's family has never been compensated or remunerated. Although taking cells without the patient's permission was not illegal in 1951 when this occurred, the continued use of her cells into the modern day raises ethical and moral questions. Today I'm talking to Professor Adrian Walsh from the University of New England to learn more about bioethics and our responsibility to behave in an ethical manner. Adrian is a professor of philosophy, focusing on political philosophy, the philosophy of economics, and applied ethics. You're also an associate editor at the Journal of Applied Philosophy, which is really cool. So to get started, can you just explain what bioethics is and what applied ethics is and why they're important? Okay. Look, um, bioethics is, I mean, in a sense, it's both a field of study and a uh, professional practice, so they're actually... You know, there are bioethicists out there working in hospitals and so on. I mean, what a bioethicist is interested in is in ethical issues related to stuff like health, um, basically related to health, and including uh, those emerging from advances in biology, medicine, and technologies. Bioethics is fundamentally a form of applied ethics, if you want to kind of look at the taxonomy of it. And one of the reasons it's important is because of, because of the advances in technology. So a lot of time we have traditional moral views, you know, moral standards, ethical theories or whatever that are associated with practices that we've always had. But suddenly you've got, um, you know, genetic engineering or you've got a whole lot of new practices that we don't have traditional moral views about. So in one of the early times, some of the early bioethical issues was when they first had, um, they were able to sustain life for longer than you might expect. So Karen Ann Quinlan was a famous case in the States where uh, this person had a... Uh, a was in a car accident, she was in a coma, she, she was kept alive for, I think it's like 15 years or something on a life, life support system. And a lot of people said, well, that's not life. And there was a debate at the time about religious views about whether turning it off would involve, you know, death and so on. And other people said, well, she doesn't have a, um, you know, a, a quality of life. I mean, there, I mean there's no, there was no, she was basically brain dead. Well, there's also the argument about is it the family doing it for themselves or is the family doing it for someone else there as well? Well, that's right. And the interesting in that case, there was, I mean, some of these cases, but this is one of the, you know, some of these cases where there's family and there's also, you know, a, um, boyfriends or whatever that are associated with it. So, you know, who, who is it that, you know, who are they doing it for? Um, and so that was a classic case of, of where, you know, the technology advanced and we didn't really have traditional, you know, our ethical theories and so on. Um, weren't able to deal with it. I mean, we might want to change our traditional ethical theories too. I mean, some of them kind of, you know, you might think, well, that, those views we don't want to hold to. But a lot of this stuff like stem cell research or, you know, um, uh, other advances that happen you know, with genetic engineering, I mean, should we do it? Um, you can think of a lot of cases or um, practices we now are able to do, like cloning, should you do it? Um, and so bioethics really was emerged there, well, it was a response to the fact that suddenly we had a whole heap of new practices and new possibilities, you know, and, and techniques and so on, technologies, that we just didn't really know what, you know, we had to kind of work through the issues in them. And they were often new dilemmas. I mean, some of them aren't. I mean, euthanasia is a very old problem. So, I mean, it's not like, I mean, bioethics, we talk about euthanasia, but of course that's not something that um, they didn't think about 2,000 years ago too, you know. So, um, 
Yeah, so I th- and I think why does it matter? Well, I think it matters because I mean, these, often these are very uh, applied issues that are really important. I mean, you think you've got a, uh, you know, your grandfather or whoever's on a life support system, should you turn it off or not? I mean, it's a, it's something we'll all have to face a lot of these sorts of dilemmas. And it's, so, a, it's a conversation I had recently as well yeah. with John Maloof about, you know, voluntarily assisted dying. There's ethical yep. concerns there as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and so, I mean, uh, but, I mean, that's what bioethics talks about. I mean, some of them, um, like euthanasia or assisted dying, are, are, are old stories, right? but a lot of them aren't. And you can think of lots of new technologies we have and should we use it? I mean, it's, it's, you know, um, and I suppose bioethics are just grappling with that, particularly the capacity to keep people alive. I mean, it's, it's you know, what counts as a quality of life? And that's yeah. a philosophical question, right? Yeah. Um, it's a really, really big one too. Yeah. So are you familiar with Henrietta Lacks? And yeah, well, I went and looked it up, so yeah. I know the story. Yeah, I mean, you know the story, yeah. yeah. Um, yep. <laughs> she was from a very different time, but what would you say would have been considered ethical then? Like, is do ethics evolve over time? I mean, I mean whether ethics evolve over time or what they would have been there. I mean, whether they evolve is a kind of has a progressive mm. sound to it. But look, generally, ethical views have changed quite radically, say, since nineteen fifty one in America. And I mean, if we think of it, I mean, like, I'm not a sociologist, but I mean, if we do sort of pop sociology and think of the social social mores at the time, then a lot's changed. I mean, at a general social level, views about, say, drug usage, sexuality, religion, and life choices were very different then. I mean, 1951 in America, as they were here, very different here. You've also got the, the race and the class to consider uh, as good, well Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, I mean, I was going to say, that's right. I mean, think about, but if you think about views like marriage and premarital sex and sexual identity, the views in society as a whole are very different. Uh, think of what's on television in terms of films and music they would listen to. And in the US, I think, you know, the race uh, is obviously a big issue. It's not that it's not here, but, I mean, you know, it's, it's probably a bigger issue there. And 1951 was before the civil rights movement and the emergence of, I suppose, the civil rights, you know, um, black power and so on in the 60s. It was also during the McCarthy era and the suppression of left-wing views that came in at that era. But I also think in the States, there's things that probably haven't changed that much. It's still very patriotic mm. in, a, in a way that's sort of surprising. It was surprising then and it's surprising now, I think, as I say, I'm not a pop sociologist, but um, well, I'm not going to do pop sociology, but I think there's a lot more patriotic in the States. And similarly, their um, views on religion, I mean, religion would have been more central in their ethical theories, I mean, in terms of, um, uh, you know, I mean, it's a much more religious place. And probably, probably in hospitals as well. Uh, yeah, and I'm kind of, you know, the Catholic Church had a big influence too. A lot of the hospitals were run by the Catholic Church. I mean, a question about whether views evolve, I mean, obviously, in a way... Well, I think they do, and I think you know we have progressed. But at the same time, when we're talking about bioethics, it's that people didn't really know, um, you know. So a lot of these, like warfare, the rules about you know whether or not you should kill people in war is, is an old problem. But a lot of the questions we're dealing with here, did they do the wrong thing? Well, you know, you, with the Henrietta Lacks that we're going to talk about, you know, the, 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 there were new issues and people hadn't thought about what the implications of it were. So, I mean, we evolve in the sense that we've had to deal with issues that we hadn't had to do before. I don't know how helpful that is. And that comes with technology evolving and growing and our understanding growing and evolving. That's true, yeah. I think if we move to medicine and medical practice, one thing that has changed a lot is the importance of consent, both here and in the US. So I was just going to talk a little bit about that. I mean, there was a time when the doctor or scientist was king or queen, and and probably king most of the time, and there was a little concern with the rights of those who were subjected to medical practice thinking. Now, the informed consent of patients is vital, um, but in those, you know, going back to 1951, the, the doctor was a law unto themselves. 
And I think this is one of the most important discussions in bioethics. Um, bioethics spend a lot of time talking about informed consent. Um, they talk about what we mean by informed consent, um, why it matters, and what it implies or the implications of it for specific medical practices. But that wasn't always the case then, as the HILO um, case demonstrates at Henrietta Lacks. But it's changed in my time. I'm old enough that I can remember going to a doc. I mean, okay, so you, know, you talk about you know, 1951 was however long ago, six, 72 years ago. But in, And I'm not quite that old. But um, in that time, there's been radical changes in uh, in my time from when I was a young adult to now. So if you went to a doctor when I was, say, 18, 19, and you asked why, what's the, you know, what's the diagnosis, prognosis, why are you giving me those particular pills, you would be met with a kind of stunned silence and that you were being impertinent, whereas now, you know, it's, it's just part of the course. So I think that's probably one of the biggest changes in medicine over my lifetime. Definitely more transparency. It's far, far, far yeah. more transparency. And then if you ask a question, you get, you get the answer. Is that kind of part of the Hippocratic Oath, though? You know, first do no harm. And if you're not giving people the answers... Are you doing harm? Well, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, if you're not, you're, I mean, are you supplying them with what they should have? I mean, you're not actually harming their interests in the first interest. Are you? I mean, you're not doing anything bad to them. But no. clearly, you're not giving them what they could have. And there's, a, there's different definitions of harm. So some definitions of harm are just simply contrasted. So you had some, you're in some set, you had in some set of conditions, and you're now in diminished condition. Or you could have a counterfactual conception of harm where it's about what you could have had. In a yeah. natural world, we would have had this. And secondly, certainly in terms of a counterfactual conception of harm, you have been harmed if they don't give you the information. But I think, you know, I mean, I, you know, the, um, yeah, I don't know if the Hippocratic Oath really covers informed consent. It's a bit vague, you know. Like, you know yeah. But I mean, I, I, you know, I think there's, there's an argument you can make. But certainly, you know, that has changed radically. I mean, it, you, you were told what's going on. And, and if, you, if, if they don't tell you, you should go and uh, make sure that they tell you. Yeah. You know, so. Because that was one of the things that did happen to Henrietta, to Miss Lax, was that her cells, she they were taken from her without her consent, yep, which is yep. the major thing. And that was legal at the time, but yep. just because it was legal doesn't mean that it's actually ethical. Is there a distinct difference? Oh, now you're going to get me on my, my pet <laughs> topics here. So, you know, um, I mean, there's an important distinction drawing here between the ethical and the legal, and I think it's important not to conflate them or to run them together. So the legal obviously concerns what the law says is permissible and impermissible, and the ethical is what is right or wrong independently of what the law says. So you often assume that if something's illegal and it's ethically wrong. You, say, you know, you say to someone, should you do that? And I'll say it's legal, or should you, oh, you shouldn't do that. Why not? It's illegal. Well, um, but of course, there are cases where that's not true. So... Think of societies with unjust laws. We might have acts which are illegal but not unethical. And you can think of like victimless crimes, like laws on the use of marijuana might be thought of mm. as unfair because smoking marijuana is not wrong, and yet the law criminalises it. And laws against homosexuality might also be another case in point, you know, where it was illegal at a certain point but um, you know, not unethical. And, and going the other way, there might be acts which we regard as unethical but are not yet illegal. So maybe certain forms of vilification are... You know, unethical. You shouldn't be doing it, but they're not at the moment illegal or whatever. You know, so so. Yeah. I mean, one of the points is that we want to um, generally we want the law and the ethical to be coextensive, to be roughly equivalent. And this is why people fight for law reform in relationship to laws that they think are unjust or unjust practices aren't illegal. But I think at the same time, there's a limit to this. And one of the, one of the things to think about here is that there are some things, in the, particularly in the realm of 
the private realm, if there is, if you believe in a private realm, um, say, say if relationships with your friends, and maybe you betray a friend, or it's not a good thing that you did, or you know, you you you, you speak badly about your friend, or you ice them, or whatever. You know, I mean, just think about the sort of things that go on in friendships. But presumably, it shouldn't be illegal, right? And this should be a realm where something can be. Un- I think it's unethical. Yeah. You know, if, if it's generally a friend and you betray a friend, but at the same time, you want there are limits on where the law should go. So, I'm thinking, on the whole, we want the law and ethics to merge. That's why we argue for law reform. When we see something people being prosecuted for something we don't think is a bad thing to do, or if we see people doing things that we think are harmful, and yet they're not being prosecuted, then I mean, I think environmental, um, you know, environmental laws I and mean, people you know poisoning certain areas with, and you know and they can get away with it for whatever reason because the law doesn't pick up on that particular form of pollution or, well, you know, then we argue for law reform. I suppose there's also the mm. the conversation surrounding AI at the moment of, you know, the deep fakes where you can take someone's voice and well, image yeah, and make yeah, them yeah. say whatever they want. That technology is so new that there's no legislation surrounding it. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly what bioethics is like. Yeah. I mean, so a good point, a really, really good point because, we, you know, we struggle when new technology comes in and often some of it's good and some of it's bad. You've got to try to work out what... Um, is appropriate and what's not. You know, we're struggling with this at the university. I'm a teacher, and if people do, you know, writing essays using AI, well, hang on. Um, is this really your work? Yeah, is it really yeah. your work? And have you developed the skills that we're trying to develop? On the other hand, there might be useful ways in which ChatGPT could be useful in study. So it's about a kind of sorting through what's worthwhile and what's not. It's checks and balances. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's yeah. good. Um, For me, I think it's an interesting question because I feel like it's a moral dilemma. So the cells that were taken from Ms. Lax have contributed to a significant number of medicinal breakthroughs, including developing the polio vaccine mm. and a number of, you know, cancer treatments because they were cells from a cancerous tumor. Does the amount of people that these cells have helped outweigh the fact that they were taken without her consent in what mm. could be considered an unethical de- decision? Yeah, when well, to answer your question, I mean, I think this particular, I mean, I think it was an unethical decision, but as it turns out, you know, it has done a lot of good. I mean, I, I want to say a little bit about, go behind that a bit, though, because, I mean, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say that I think that, you know, the ends always justifies the means. Mm. And so I think in this particular case, as it's turned out, you know, I presume, um, it, you know, it's been better than the amount of harm that was caused. But at the same time, you want to have laws in which involve, which respect consent. And I, I, mean, I wanted to say a little bit about ethical theory here. I just want to go back a little bit. Because, I mean, in general, I think in this case, you might think, well, hang on, as it turns out, you know, it's, it's been a good thing, but that doesn't take away from the point of view that her, you know, there was lack of consent. Her family so, hasn't been, um, until recently, her family wasn't, uh, they weren't compensated. Yeah, okay, yeah. So I want to go back a little bit. I mean, since we're talking about bioethics, I mean, I think, uh, the fundamental distinction in ethics is well, one fundamental distinction in ethics is between consequentialism and deontology. And in determining the rightness or wrongness of an action, you can either look at the act in itself or the consequences. Right? Yep. So the act in itself, in this case, would be the consent, lack of consent. The consequences would be, um, you know, whatever came up afterwards, namely that you know all the people whose lives have been improved. And so de- consequentialists focus on the consequences, and deontologists focus on the act in and of itself. Mm. And presumably the most well-known... So this is a real debate in philosophy. I mean, are you going to focus on the actual act itself? Are you going to focus on the consequences? And the most well-known deontological theory is that of Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher. And he famously said we should not have anything to do with the serpent windings of utilitarianism. 
of, of consequentialism. What he meant by that was, you know, is something right or wrong? Well, it depends. I mean, let's just say the Henrietta Lacks thing, where it was bad and then it's good because suddenly more people are, you know, you know. so it, on, in a sense, whether or not it's good or bad is a function of how it turns out. So, I mean, Kant meant the rightness or wrongness of an action is, will depend on the consequences and that depends on how things, you know, as a matter of, pan out. The most well-known consequentialist theory, of course, is utilitarianism. And you would know, I mean, some of the most famous Australian philosophers have been utilitarian, so you probably know Peter Singer, mm-hmm. um, this guy called Julian Savlescu, who's at Oxford and another Australian. And they, they tend to run the line that you maximise the greatest good for the greatest number, so the consequences are what matters. And the utilitarian will say that the consequences in this case outweigh the lack of consent, insofar as we would not want to stop using... I mean, I think, what, what, I mean, so you're, I mean you're asking the question bluntly. I, I mean... Um, I wouldn't want to stop using the cells, put it that way, because the consent wasn't there. But there are cases where you might wonder. I mean, there was data collected from um, in Nazi concentration camps. Yeah. And some of that material you might actually... I mean, people... I mean, I don't think in this case, you know, the material or the cells that you have. But I think the information from the Nazi concentration camps is pretty tainted. Mm. You know, people were tortured and, you know... Um, Joseph Mengler did all sorts of experiments. I just want to say something about the kinds of decisions where the good of the whole... Um, well, for the good for this collective, justifies violating individual rights or interests. There's a 20th century philosopher, John Rawls, and he noted that utilitarianism, utilitarians, consequentialists, so utilitarians and consequentialists are basically, you know, utilitarianism is a form of consequentialism. Yeah. Um, will often lead to the sacrifice of the interests of minorities in the weak. And the overall consequences might be good, but not for the specific individuals. And he said, one of the things is that utilitarianism fails to respect the separateness of persons. And he responds, he came up with what he now calls prioritarianism. Prioritarianism, which says that we need to focus on the well-being of the worst off in the first instance. So inequalities that lead to greater social goods or injustices like failing to consent that lead to greater social goods need to mean that the worst off is better off. So he puts his brake on utilitarianism and consequentialism. And I think that's what's interesting in part about Rawls is he's saying, okay, yeah, look, consequences can be good, but you need to kind of prioritise that those who are the victims of this. Because, you know, you, you think of a, a country like the United States, massively wealthy, mm. but they don't look after, their, look after the poor there. And, I mean, Rawls was American, the, he was a citizen. He wanted the poor yeah. most and minorities to be looked after to a greater extent than they were. So I, it's sort of to the side of what you're saying, but I just I didn't want to kind of crudely... Not crudely, but I just want to agree that it's just a matter of consequences versus consent. Um, well, in a sense it is, but I think we need to kind of reflect on the setting up practice. I mean, that happened in the past. I think in the, in the future we need to make sure that... I mean, consent could have been gotten, you know, um, achieved from her. And we could have the consequences, you know, the consequences could have been good, so... And that comes with transparency as well. You know, if I don't know what I'm consenting to, why should I consent to it? Mm. If I don't know what is being used and why yep. and why it's important, why should I say yes? So having that transparency of saying, this is what we want to do, this is why we want to do it, this is what it could help, is a really vital step, I suppose, in going forward in an ethical manner. Mm. Yep. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I mean, informed consent is really important. I mean, did you want to talk about that? Or is... Yeah, we, we can, for sure, because that was one of the biggest arguments in that case was that her consent wasn't gathered. And but the other part of it was also her family wasn't remunerated mm. and they had no idea what was going on for quite a number of years. So why is informed consent and autonomy 
vital in medicine. Yeah, good question. It's really important. I mean, you're going to hear more about informed consent in medicine and bioethics than you're going to hear about anywhere else. And I, I mean, important informed consent is important generally, but as you say, vital in medicine. And you might say why. Well, I think I can think of three reasons. There are lots of reasons, but um, I can think of three reasons why informed consent or auton- and autonomy are important in medicine. One thing is these are things that are typically done to our person, as it were. They affect our personhood. I mean, personhood and bodily autonomy are not auton- synonymous, but bodily identity and personal identity are obviously closely aligned. You know, who I am when I think of me, I think of my body to a large extent. So what's done to my body is done to me. So it's not like being non-consensual with respect to, you know, you did something in my car, you know, fix it up, or you, I don't know, you did something in my house. You know, it's very, very different. It's actually fundamental to who we are mm. often. The second reason is that medical practices can violate our dignity. I mean, I, I was just had a surgery the other day. I was very much aware of this. You, you know, you're very vulnerable if you have a... We just uh, think of a colonoscopy. Like well, that's yeah, one of them. Yeah. I mean, you know, so, or, you know, any kind of, if you have a general anaesthetic. Yeah. You know, you're, you're vulnerable. And so... Yeah, these things are potentially embarrassing, debilitating, or humiliating. And so I think there's respect is required. And part of that respect is that anything that's done to a person is something that they agreed to. Um, many bioethicists, I mean, I talked about Kant just a minute ago, but they see the Kantian principle of respect for persons, which focuses on dignity, is really important. And that says you should always treat people as ends and never simply as mere means. If they were just getting this stuff from Henry de Lacks, then, you know, they were treating her as a mere means. I mean, so consent is in medicine is really important because it's about treating a person as an end, as an end in themselves, to use Kant's term. And that's the principle of respect for persons that Kant um, outlined, and it's one that's really big in medicine. I mean, Kant was a philosopher. He lived from 1724 to 1804. It's a long time ago. But, you know, people take that principle he had as being very central in bioethics. Um, and there was clearly a lack of respect in Henrietta case, Henrietta Lacks' case. But, I mean, I think, you know, they violate dignity and you're vulnerable. Um, and you think about context, it's not just that, you know, it's embarrassing or, as you say, you know, colonoscopy. Um, it's not just that it's humili- it could be potentially humiliating. You're also vulnerable in a way that you need to be well aware of what's going on. So, you know, you're probably in pain, or will be sick, you're anxious about your future. Yep. And so you're much more easily um, probably manipulable. So I think, you know, informed consent is really important in that context. And if it's the case you're too sick, then that's why we have proxy consent as well. So if you are not capable of giving consent at that point, you know, not competent, you've been knocked out or whatever, that's why family members are really important. Um, There's also the do not resuscitate, mm. things like that. That's, you know, prior consent as well. You're still consenting. Yeah, you are, yeah, yeah. And that consent carries over even when you are no longer in that yep. position able to yeah, that's right. Because yeah, you yeah. passed out or you're in a coma. Yep, yeah. no, that's right. I mean, but that's just a way of, I mean, you've said you didn't want to be, let's say you put in a, an advanced directive that said you didn't want to be uh, kept alive. Well, you know, that, that there's something you can deal with, you know. In a sense, you've made a choice and that can be respected. I mean, sometimes families don't respect them. Which should they? Oh, they should. They, yeah, should, they should, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, there was a famous case, a Terry Shriver case, you know, this one from um, 2004. And she, again, she was somebody who was, who was in it. I think she was in a car accident, and the family were kind of deeply religious, but there was a husband mm. who was with her, and he wanted her to be turned, you know, the thing to be turned off. And it got caught up in politics. I mean, Bush, uh, it was during the election campaign in 2004 for uh, the younger Bush, and, it, it, you know, you can see how, you know, they, they yeah. um, eventually they turned it off. Now, one of the things with that is, I mean, it was interesting, and I, I don't know enough about the case, but he, they were highly religious, he wasn't. 
And this question, like, she'd been, been oh, she was like 27 or 28, if you look it up, however, she'd been living with this man for a long time. He had a much better idea of who she was. Who she was as a person, what, what she were. wanted. Yeah, yeah I mean, and, but the, the family blocked it. Eventually, she, the, you know, the life support system was turned off. But it was highly, it got made more, much more heated than it might have otherwise because it was the election campaign. You know, and Bush kind of got himself involved in it. Yeah. And if anyone's interested, they can go look it up. It's a Terry Shriver case. Um, but again, I mean, the family, I think the family didn't really respect what her views were. And particularly as an adult, they knew if she left home at 17. You're a very different person when you leave very. home at 17 than when you're 27. Very different. Adult. I was going to say, one, one thing I was sort of interested in this was, you could run an argument here about property rights too, is that, I mean, and there have been people that run this line, that property rights is, I mean, why did they, do, in what sense was she, you know, uh, something wrong done to her? And, and you might actually catch that in property rights. But I actually think, and there have been people that run this line, you know, their cells were hers. Yeah. You know, she owns a body, therefore the cells are hers, and therefore uh, the family should be compensated because it's, um, you know, it's like my grandfather's. It's a violation. Yeah. yeah. But, but I think I, there was a, a court case in the Supreme Court in 1990-something basically ruled that cells that have been discarded... So there's a case called, and this is one you're talking about, I mean, Moore versus Regents and yeah. in, the, in the States. I mean, so it was a case in California uh, in 1990, and the Supreme Court of California ruled in a four-to-three decision that individuals uh, do not have a right to share in profits earned from research performed on their bodily materials. So in its decision, the Supreme Court of California ruled that cancer patient John L. Moore did not have personal property rights to samples or fluids that his physicians took from his body for research purposes. And Moore created the precedent in California that although physicians are required to disclose their research interests to their patients, patients don't have property rights, yeah. a property right claims to any samples that their physicians take from their body. So it's relevant because I, mean, I think in one sense there's an argument there that the, the scientists are going to make, that, or medical researchers, that look, we do the work, okay, it's yours. And you can see how they might run this in Henry Lacks. You know, it's your body, your body parts or cells or that. But... You weren't going to do anything with them, and then we put this labour in. And so I think that's the argument that some people make. And funny enough, in this, it's, it's not true here, but in the States, you can... Because what happened to this character, more he went and discovered... They kept on asking him to come back. He had some rare cell that allowed him to... Um, it was like sickle cell or anemia. And so um, they kept asking him to come back. He couldn't work out why they kept on wanting to... You know, he was, he was, I think he was up in Seattle or something like that, and they're flying him down to L.A. or... San Francisco, and they were, he kept on wondering, why are they paying for me to come down here? I don't mind coming down here. But then he discovered that they'd patented his cells. And, yeah. um, and you know, there was a long, that was like 1984, and that court case in 1990. But here you can't patent. But, I mean, it's an interesting case. I mean, our property rights cuts both ways because you might actually think the property right is not in the person who owned the, the original cell, but it's the person who does all the work discovering it. And then would they have consented <clears throat> if they knew that, you know, their cells would be used for profit? Well, he wouldn't have, this guy, this yeah. is what he was saying, but nonetheless he lost that case yeah. in the end. I mean, that's the States. He, you know, different dynamic, different, yeah. I guess, different morals that we have in our national identity in a way. Well, I think so. America is much more property rights and, you know, is much more central in a way than it probably is here. Um, I just, I mean, it's good that, I mean, you raised that because I was thinking about this. I think that that's a probably, in a way, that's a worse case because it went on and on and on. I mean, with Henry Lacks, you know, they took the cells and she, she passed died. away, yeah. yeah but... In this case, it was it was years of him getting flown down to um, California to. Um, For all probably thinking, oh, it's a nice vacation. Yeah, he just know? didn't know that they yeah. pa- he, he looked at the patents and found out that he'd been patented or the cells have been. Which patented. that's a whole <clears throat> sticky situation of legal, ethical, oh yeah, bodily autonomy. How do you patent someone else's DNA and cells? Yeah, that's right. I mean, 
and there's been lots of PhDs written on that particular case, yeah. so you know, and, and people exploring it in articles and so on. So it's worth looking up if people are interested in this case. I mean, the lax case is when the halo cells is, is far less pernicious, probably. I think. And I, I believe they <coughs> recently reached a settlement with Thermo Fisher Scientific, which was the company mm. that continued to profit off of her cells. So in in a way, you know, they did get numeration. Yep. They did get compensation, but it took them years and years yeah, and yeah, years yeah. of fighting. So do we have a responsibility to right ethical wrongs like that? Well, I think so. I mean, yeah, I think so. I mean, particularly, I mean, some of it is, um, I mean, I, you know, I was talking about different kinds of moral claims, but in some sense, it's what, what some philosophers like Elizabeth Anderson call expressive values. In a way, what we're doing was, it's not just, this is a non-consequentialist frame, but it's not just that we're saying they had bad consequences. We're wanting to express our values. In part, that compensation we're getting is not just whatever amount it is. You're actually expressing something that we think this is inappropriate. Mm. And, the, and the, the money that's given is a way of expressing our disdain, I suppose, or, you know, um, for condemnation of that kind of practice without people getting consent. There's another case. I mean, you might know about this one, um, um, the Tuskegee syphilis case. It was a study cu- conducted between 1932 and 1972 by the United States Public Health Service with 400 African-American men with syphilis. So, there's, you know, it's class and mm. race and stuff now. So the purpose of the study was to observe the effects of the disease when untreated. What they didn't realise is the penicillin they were getting was not genuine. It was not real. Yeah. No, so it was like placebo, or, you know, I mean, um, well, not placebo. It was, so they were just testing what happened if people didn't get penicillin. Yeah. So, you had, a, so you, had a, you had a test. So you've got some people with um, syphilis who are getting the penicillin and those who aren't. Okay. Now, within about four or five years, I could see the difference. It went on for 40 years. And these people developed tertiary syphilis. So none of the infected men were treated with penicillin, despite the fact that by 1947 the antibiotic was widely available and become the standard treatment for syphilis. And it continued until 1972 when it was leaked and got into the newspapers in that. It was um, in the end of that year. And then by that stage, 40, 28 had died from syphilis, 100 had died from, this other 400, 100 had died from complications related to syphilis. And 40 of the patients' wives were infected with syphilis and 19 children were born with congenital syphilis. So... In 1997, a long, long, long time afterwards, Bill Clinton formally apologised on behalf of the United States to the victims. And this, this is a much more egregious case than um, the Henrietta Lacks, but certainly, yeah. you know, yeah, we do need to kind of, I mean, that's a case where clearly, I mean, the President of the United States has come out and said, you know, we did the wrong thing here. Yeah, I think writing historical wrongs is really important. But I who, mean, whose responsibility is it in that case? Is it the person who, who did it? Is it their family, their descendants? Is it... A leader? Yeah, no, that's a good question about historical responsibility for, you know, collective responsibility for uh, historical wrongs. I mean, mm. as a, I think as a country, we're responsible. I mean, often the people, in this case, the people who did this would have probably been dead by the time Clinton... I mean, it was 1932, Clinton apologised in 97, and 65 years yeah. later. I mean, I think in, particularly in, in cases which were involved sort of minorities or, you know, exploitation of different people with different groups, you know, it's, it's clearly something that the country as a whole needs to at least apologise and try to right the wrong. I mean, we had it here, of course, as well. You know, so it's not... But I was just... That's a medical case. So there was an experiment since we're talking about bioethics. It was, it was probably the worst of that kind. I mean, it's 400 men who, you know, who for 40 years didn't get treatment for a disease yeah. that. I mean, I, you know, presumably they got good information, but that doesn't justify it. I mean... No, yeah. because they, they could have been treated. No, you've, sure. you've made that decision that I could treat these people and help them, or I could do this, and maybe we learn something, but... Again, it's that, that thinking of does what I'm doing to these people outweigh mm. the cost of what I'm learning and, and vice versa, which I guess leads to my final question. You know, should there be more ethical oversight <laughs> in medicine? Well, look, I mean, to be honest with you, I think, I mean, I, you know, I think there needs to be ethical oversight. I think there is a lot of ethical oversight at the moment of medicine, but, you know, there are ethical, the ethics committees. 
what I do think is that we should never kind of, uh, we need to be vigilant about it. I mean, I think we need to maintain. I think at the moment that, you know, there are enormous, lots of ethical, you know, there is informed consent, but we can't get slack about it. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's the, the main point that I would say. I, you know, I don't know if we need more ethics. I, you don't want to overburden the system if it becomes cumbersome with respect to research, but it needs to be the case that those checks and balances, as you used this phrase before, are in place. And, it's, it's you know, you have some event, some something bad happens, whether in the states like Tuskegee or whatever, you know, some event happens and everyone's vigilant and then suddenly, you know, over time people become less vigilant. So I think, I mean, I think it's important that those... Um, protocols and committees and so on exist. But I, I don't think we need more ethics, to be honest. And, you know, I mean, that's coming from a <laughs> bioethicist. But, I mean, I think, we've, you know, it's enough, but we just need to maintain, what, you know, those yeah. standards. No, I think so. You know, I think what's most important is we remain vigilant so the vulnerable in particular are not poorly treated and exploited.